right. How are you today, Kathy? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm well, thank you as well. It's a great room of people here who seem to be very interested and enthusiastic to hear all the evidence, including yours. So I'm going to ask you first, though, uh, do you affirm to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? I do. Thank you. Hi, Kathy. Hi. We meet again. Absolutely. Good. Before we start, though, I do really want to thank everybody involved with this and just giving everybody uh, you know, an opportunity to speak their experience and share what they've experienced for the past few years. It's, it's, been, it's an honor to be able to speak here today, so thank you for that. Yeah, you're very welcome, uh, Kathy. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself, Kathy. Uh, what do you do? So I'm an educator, and I say educator because I am a teacher by trade, but when I, I was working in the school system, but not as a classroom teacher, I was what was called a TLA, a teaching learning assistant. Um, so when all this happened, I was you know, full-time permanent. Um, I'm a mom, I have three kids, ages seven to 21. Um, I'm a big animal lover. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm just an average person. <laughs> Absolutely. So where do you teach, Kathy? And or do you still uh, work as a TLA now? or? Um, so I, we were able to go back to work last June 1st, and I, and I did. And then I went back in the school year, starting in September. So I work with Newfoundland and Labrador English School District. Um, and then I just got this other job opportunity, which I, I, I just thought I would explore. It was more money, and not that that's really the issue, but given the fact that I was unemployed for a number of months, our family was you know, financially stretched. So I really had to explore this opportunity and, and see, but you know, my heart is still in education, and I, I do hope to go back at some point. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, how long were you working as a TLA? I mean, I've been in the school system with the NLESD since 2007, like as subs, sometimes replacements. And I, I've, I've moved in and out of doing different things. I, I've, but most, I've consistently worked with young people. Like I've worked with Choices for Youth in the past. So as a TLA in this permanent position, uh, that was, I guess this is my fifth year. 2019 is when I started. Okay. Excellent. Um, what grades are you mainly involved with? My school is uh, K to four. K to four, and the ages that will be that you typically teach will be, what are you involved with? Um, so the way that the, so the TLAs are like support, so we basically help the teachers. So I was most often with the the K to two. Okay, to two, excellent. So they're five to seven years old. Okay, so just yeah, just starting out in life, really. Yeah. Kathy, in your submission to the NCI, uh, you had stated that you were diagnosed with uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome. Yes. Uh, can you tell me more about that, please? So I was pre I am a Newfoundlander, but I was living in Ontario. And just prior, just after I moved back home to Newfoundland, mm -hmm. I became ill with, um, I had pneumonia. And I was experiencing really weird symptoms. Like I had, uh, I was getting hives and and I have weakness in my extremities and just without sparing you all the details. So I ended up 
nobody really knew what was wrong with me. I went to her, my doctor was following me because the symptoms kept getting worse. And um, Remembrance Day weekend, um, after seeing another specialist on Friday who kind of wrote it off as a flu, um, on Sunday of Remembrance Day weekend, I think it was actually Remembrance Day, I, I woke up and I, I, I couldn't move my, like it's hard to explain Anyone who's had a epidural when given childbirth and you know, how heavy your limbs feel, that was a feeling that I had. And it was a struggle for me to walk, and it was progressively getting worse. By the time I went to emerge, I could only get my hands up like to my head, sort of like this, but I couldn't comb my hair, I couldn't brush my teeth. And I was like, okay, this is not a flu. So I went... Um, and I saw a, neur- a neurologist just so happened to be at emergency that day for something else. And he came and saw me and decided that I had to stay for observation. Um, after some tests, it was determined that I had Guillain-Barre syndrome. Um, I, the first thing they did for me was put me on IVIG. And it got worse. Um, I couldn't move my arms at all. Like, so it's, it's really weird with, with getting very, like, it's not like if you had a car accident and you're paralyzed, like you're paralyzed from the waist down and everything is numb. I, I couldn't move, but with help, I could get to like a seated position, but I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't go to the washroom myself. I couldn't feed myself. Um, my mom gave up her job and came to my bedside and she helped me actually I mean, yes, I was in hospital, but she did all my primary care for me. Uh, I was a young mother at the time. Uh, my children, I only had two then, were uh, five and 18 months old. So after two weeks of being in the hospital, and I, 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 sorry, I focus on this part so much. Oh, that's okay. What does that have to do? But it's just important for you to understand where I was coming from. So... Um, after two weeks of being in the hospital, it was like I said, they treated me with IVIG first and it, it got worse. And then it was determined that I should have what was called plasmapheresis, where I had a line inserted in my jugular. Um, my blood was put through a centrifuge and all the bad plasma was, was taken out. And and that went on for two weeks with the hopes of, of getting rid of all the, the plasma. So what happens with really rare immune system, I suppose, I mean, a doctor would better be able to explain it, but essentially what happened is your immune system is attacking your body. So my immune system was attacking the myelin sheaths around my nerves that was preventing my brain from communicating and, and doing certain things. I know of people who've been paralyzed to the point that they were on respirators. Thank God that did not happen to me. But I was, you know, essentially paralyzed from negative. I couldn't do anything for myself. I couldn't lift my arms. I couldn't feed myself. I couldn't comb my hair. I couldn't dress myself. I couldn't go to the bathroom without help. Um, you know, and so then once I was considered medically stable, I was moved into the Miller Center, which is a, a physical rehabilitation center in St. John's. Uh, a, lot, a lot of time you'll see stroke patients there. And so that I stayed there then um, for four weeks as an inpatient, I believe it was. It might have been six, but I, I, for sure it was four. Um, as an inpatient where I had intensive physiotherapy and occupational therapy to try to get myself back to where I was. Even though sometimes people are not lucky enough to get back to where they were and have long-term residual effects. But, you know, I was a mom and, you know, not being able to hug my children 
it was really hard. Like that was a thing that got me through was, you know, thinking about getting back to my kids. So after a lot of hard work, I, I used to be able to go home like on visits, like sometimes on the weekends, sometimes in the evening, just for a few hours. But on the weekends, there were certain stipulations that my family had to have, like there had to be a bed on the main floor. So I was allowed to go home for weekend visits to visit my kids. Um, you know, I remember one night sitting in a wheelchair and not being able to move, and my little 18-month-old just toddled around the floor, fell flat on her face, and you know, your instinct is to hug her, and, and, and you just can't move. And, and, you know, I had to sit there and just watch her cry while I summoned my mother-in-law to come pick her up and console her. So, you know, it was very surreal, a very traumatic experience for me. And as you can see, like, I can move. I'm back to normal. My neurologist, you know, said it was, you know, it was pretty much miraculous. But I, I gained the recovery level that I have. And I should be very grateful for that. You know, I do have residual effects. I do have these, I don't know how to describe them. They're like pins and needles in my extremities sometimes. But... They're more intense than that. It's more like razors, and they just kind of come and go. And I do have a lot of tight muscles that I regularly have to get, like, massage therapy and stuff for, like, in my legs and hips. Mm -hmm. um, so after discussions with my neurologist, I mean, I have a letter that I submitted to you um, where he stated to my family doctor that I was advised for me not to get – he specified vaccinations in the letter as uh, pneumococcal and influenza, which is really, at that time, the only respiratory-type vaccinations that were available. But in our conversations and what I've revealed, he would discourage me against vaccination, period, unless the risk you know, weighed the benefits sort of deal. So I've kind of lived my life for 15 years, not as an anti-vaxxer. Like I have three children. My children are all vaccinated. My pets are all vaccinated. I was not an anti-vaxxer. But just to give you a level of an idea of the kind of support I had for this, because um, since I recovered from Guillain-Barre syndrome, we had the H1N1 epidemic, that outbreak. And, you know, my family doctor was a doctor I had with Guillain-Barre syndrome, so I was her first Guillain-Barre patient. And she always, always supported me with this. So the conversation around H1N1, I was a substitute teacher at the time. Classes were filled with sick children going home during the day and that sort of thing. She wanted me to get my children vaccinated and my husband vaccinated for what she considered herd immunity to protect me. Because I wasn't going to get vaccinated against H1N1. And that was, you know, that was what we determined together as a, as a team, you know, like, well, no, you can't be getting vaccinations. So... Um, I typically, uh, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, but I typically never got my children vaccinated for influenza. I really do believe when it comes to influenza, you know, healthy children should just deal with that growing up. I think it's part of building your immune system. Mm -hmm. And I, after some serious thought, I was like, okay, maybe I should have a lot of young people dying. So they did get vaccinated. But I, on the other hand, continue to teach out in the school system. So one night I get a phone call from my family doctor who was very concerned about me out there teaching and just said, you know, I've been thinking about you. I, I really, if, would you mind if I put a prescription of Tamiflu on, on the, at your pharmacy for you? Like, so that if you get any signs whatsoever of, of this H1N1 influenza that you go get it. That's kind. Now, I never needed it. Another example is um, I used to volunteer with therapy doc. Uh, so I volunteered at the Janeway here, which is a children's hospital. And I volunteered in seniors' homes. Now, you have to always get your tests uh, they get, they get to do the tuberculosis test. You submit your vaccination record and that sort of thing, and your MMR. My MMR comes back as inconclusive. 
because I was born before 1982 when people, um, we only got one shot. Now, I could get another one, but they advised against it, okay? Um, even when it came to the tuberculosis test where they insert a little bit of the virus under your skin, again, they found the alternate blood test for me, so I could go volunteer in these places. Now, if I, I don't remember exactly, but I believe I did have to sign a waiver for volunteering at these, but I was allowed to go. You know, I was allowed to go. So when it came to this vaccine, I was very vigilant. I, I started, you know, listening to people, reading things as, as quickly as I could, um, just to see what this was about. Like I was, I was scared too in the beginning of COVID. Kathy, you know, I'm just, I'm just gonna. I'm, yeah. Yeah, let me let me just uh, just quickly interrupt you. Then you've got a wonderful flow going. I really appreciate the wealth of information you're providing us. I would just like to ask a couple of clarifying questions. Sure. When when what year did you originally? Uh, what's the original diagnosis of your um, Guillain-Barre syndrome? November two thousand six. So that was in two thousand and six, and you said you know there was a neurologist there at the time that happened to be there. Did this neurologist, you know, uh, he said, and I do have a letter, and I will forward that to the commissioners as well for consideration, uh, the medical exemption and the medical recommendation. But the the neurologist suggested to you in writing not to obtain, not to get any vaccines because of the potential hazards associated with that. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. Um, now, you may not remember, remember the exact conversation that you had with your general practitioner uh, your family doctor um, and in regards to the vaccine, specifically, let's say, to the COVID-19 vaccine. But can you surmise uh, potentially the, the conversation that you had with your, with your physician? So I grappled with getting this when I knew it was going to like, possibly be mandated. I, I wasn't sure what to do. And I mean, let me be clear, like, I really did value uh, my family doctor. I felt I had a really good relationship with her. So I've called her just to talk this out with her, but her opinion, um, I mean, she didn't, in all fairness, she didn't push it on me, but it was not, but she didn't have the same, or didn't express the same kind of concern she did, for example, when H1N1 happened. Hmm. It was basically, well, this is what we're recommending, right. and we recommend everyone to get it. Okay. She didn't want to see me lose my job, so she did agree to write a letter for me again, which I've submitted as, yes. to you as well. Because what happened, so as I, you know, I listened to different um, sources of information, um, I, I, I often followed the GDS uh, CID, CIDP.org website. They had a whole section for um, people like myself who were feeling very survivors. Apparently, like in December of 2020, Dr. Fauci recommended against the vaccine for people who had, uh, who who were, uh, sorry, like survivors of Gideon Bray syndrome. And this organization actually wrote an open letter to Dr. Fauci asking that he reconsider that. There was a doctor on that website as well, Dr. Peter Donofrio, I believe his name was, he's chairman of the Global Medical Advisory Board. And I watched a video from him where he talked about how miraculous these vaccines were, 95% effective, no adverse effects. Um, um, so, I mean, you know, and then, as time went on, and, and there was a news story that came out from Global News out west, I think it was dated June June 17th, of a gentleman who had gotten Guillain-Barre syndrome from the vaccine and was seeking compensation. And in that news article, there were, I think, 14 people identified in Canada who were after 
uh, suffering from Guillain-Barre syndrome as a result of the vaccination. Um, you know, I followed what was happening in the states. I followed people like uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, who spoke earlier, and Dr. Robert Malone and their concerns. And the more I had those concerns, and, the, and, and like I said, I had a concerns anyway, just with vaccination. I've lived my life 15 years without that. Like, I always, you know, when there was outbreaks of anything at school, I, I just, you know, hand washing essentially is what I did. Um, so when uh, our premier met with Francois Legault, who Quebec had already had the mandates, I felt, okay, that's exactly where we're going, and, and, we, and we did. Yes. I reached out to my union uh, in September 29th to express my concerns. At no point was I, what you call, angry. I, I wanted to change the conversation because I felt like this was just too black and white of an issue. Like, there are people, and not that my concern is any more than anyone else's concern, but um, I know there had to be people like me who had similar concerns, whether it was just because it was a new vaccine or they had something like blood clot issues or, you know, and, and you couldn't even have the conversation. So my doctor did write a letter for me, but in that same letter, she basically said that she confirmed my, my diagnosis, um, said that I was advised of the COVID vaccine benefits and I declined because of the small chance of, um, of relapse. And I, my, my neurologist told me that relapse, so the average population has like a one in a hundred thousand, I think, chance of getting Guillain-Barre syndrome. Mine was now increased significantly because of having it again. It is still rare. Don't get me wrong. It's still rare, but it's there. And the way I also sought to, I mean, my neurologist also emphasized the importance of being healthy, which I take my health very seriously now, as I, I mean, I suppose I always did on some level, but probably even more so now. So, you know, it's not something I, I took lightly. And the way I see with a vaccine, why would I stimulate my immune system, which has already shown that it can turn on me on purpose? If I get a cold or a pneumonia or something, I mean, I do my best to avoid that. I do my, my, my best to avoid getting sick. I take my vitamins. I go, I exercise. I go outside. I wash my hands. I Kathy, do all those things. Kathy, it sounds like you're taking all the necessary precautions that, that are best for you to make sure that you're as, as protected as you can be uh, without taking a vaccine. And, and I hate to, to interject, but we, we are Sorry, running I, I a little bit short on time. So I really appreciate your, your story. I know you have so much to tell us, but unfortunately, you have unfortunately so such limited time. Uh, I just have, you know, really one, I guess one final question before I pass it on to the commissioners if they have any. But just, you know, briefly, um, how has this experience affected, you know, your financial situation uh, with your family? Because I believe there was an impact there too. Well, I was put on, to, on paid leave. I went through the whole process with my union. Um, I was advised to seek exemption. That's not what I originally wanted. I wanted just to grieve the process in the beginning because I felt everyone should have a choice. Um, I applied for EI. I was denied. Um, I appealed it and it was denied. Um, on my ROE, it says that in the little note box that I was unvaccinated as per mandatory policy. I had no source of income. My elderly parents were on standby, ready to sell their house so I could lose mine. And, you know, it put a lot of stress in our house, obviously, me not working. And my kids got to see me being stressed. 
I cry pretty much every day because it, it's just this, a disbelief. I, I sit home and it's like, I can't go to work. Like, I'm not allowed to go to work. And, you know, even now, I still have trouble processing that. It is, like it is it, difficult to believe that you were, you know, even with a medical exemption, that your a record of employment, which will be an exhibit uh, for you, actually mentions in the comment section a little quote, not vaccinated as per mandatory policy. Yeah. So, but uh, thank you. Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, no, like, I did try all the regular ways to, to have the conversation. I reached out to my union before the mandates. I reached out to local uh, radio talk show hosts. I reached out to politicians. I wrote an eight-page letter to our premier, and I got no response. Thank you very much, Kathy. I really appreciate your time. Um, just Thank if there are any questions from the commissioners, please. No? Okay, there, there are no questions. Kathy, once again, thank you very much. I really appreciate your time, and I wish you would have had more time to listen to, to more of what you have to say, but um, thank you very much.